Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life bands of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds. Reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq, these are the true stories of the harsh realities of war as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler, and this week we present 46 Days of Hell in Fallujah. Fallujah, Iraq, November 2004. We were moving extremely fast and violent through that city. When the house to house happened, that's where the intensity just went through the roof. They would have to fight from house to house until they had cleared out 24,000 houses. You can see the guys, you know, getting hit and still advancing forward. If the guy's behind the door waiting for you to enter, I don't care how good you are, you're not going to beat him to the punch of shooting you first. You're just in the mindset of now keeping your buddies alive. An impossible mission to take back a city consumed by terror. It's incredible to watch those guys work. Their professionalism, the bravery, it was something else. A brotherhood that stood shoulder to shoulder against evil. We all fought together, and this was our objective, and we took it. In the biggest stronghold they have, the most dangerous city in Iraq, and we just came in, and we took something from you. And we're not stopping it. We're going to keep doing it. No quick victory here. This is their story. There wasn't any easy way of winning this fight. Against the odds, 46 days of hell in Fallujah. On March 31st, 2004, Iraqi insurgents ambush a convoy of American private military contractors. Four armed contractors are killed and their bodies brutalized in public. Photos of the event are released worldwide, shocking the American nation. What is left of the burning car? Eyewitnesses say a large crowd gathered and dragged one of the bodies away. Before long, President George W. Bush orders a full-scale military operation to clear the insurgents from Fallujah. In April of 2004, over 2,000 Marines launch Operation Vigilant Resolve. But in less than a month, the brutal assault is stopped short of clearing the city. Bing West, author of No True Glory. When the Marines at the order of the White House were halfway across the city, Major General Mattis said, we're gonna finish this. And then they were pulled out. They were ordered to leave. And we left the Islamists in charge for six months. Without an American presence, the insurgency declares Fallujah their new caliphate and grows the insurgent force, continuing to undermine the region. By November, with violence escalating and the insurgent threat growing in strength, Marine and Army forces are sent back in. With last-minute preparations taking place by American forces for their assault on the city of Fallujah, the Iraqi government has declared a state of emergency. American jets continue to attack key insurgent sites within With no guarantees for their safety, the few remaining civilians in the city have been warned to leave before the coming conflict. 
On November 7, 2004, some 10,000-plus Marine and Army troops prepared to assault Fallujah for the second time. In the six months since the last battle, the insurgents have turned the city into an invader's nightmare. The Marines knew exactly who was in there. There were about 2,000 enemy fighters. They knew the layout of the city, but there were 18 to 24,000 houses. There were 5,000 city blocks. They're all made out of concrete, and the terrorists inside the town, 2,000 of them, knew every back road, every single alleyway. They would have to fight literally from house to house until they had cleared out 24,000 houses. So before the Marines went in, they knew this was going to be one hell of a fight. The insurgents have created a massive complex of bunkers, gun positions, and booby traps in the southern part of Fallujah, while also spreading those deadly defenses throughout the rest of the city. The four Marine battalions and two Army units will attack side by side from the north, and over the course of 10 days, systematically sweep through the city in an effort to destroy as many insurgent strongholds as possible. The 1-8th Marines will be at the heart and center of the attack, with Bravo Company at the tip of the spear. Eric Goss, 1st Platoon, 3rd Squad Leader, Bravo Company. I was a team leader in 3rd Squad and 1st Platoon. You take the newer guys under your wing, so not only your guys, but the platoon is in general. It's a family. You take these guys under as, as if they're little brothers. You know the statistics of uh, what urban combat is, especially with the numbers they told us to expect in Fallujah. The knowing that there's going to be a large percentage of you that are going to be wounded or killed. The question is, I guess always, are you ready? Did you, did you do your job? Did I take it serious enough? And I think you know the answer is yes. But you fear the answer is no. 6 p.m. Brad Watson, Scout Sniper Team Leader. My role was to provide overwatch for Bravo Company, 2nd Platoon, during the fight. I put myself with 2nd Platoon because that was my family. I wanted to do everything I could to protect every member of that platoon. Justin Best, 2nd Squad, 2nd Team Leader, Bravo Company. We had a ton of camaraderie. I mean, we loved each other so much. It was crazy. I mean, we, we were mean to each other, strict to each other, and we made sure that we knew our jobs. But um, when it came down to it, we're just a huge company of brothers is what it was. Despite the cockiness and the confidence we had in each other and in ourselves, there was always the, uh, the sort of the underlying, oh, I don't want to say doubt, but almost fear of the unknown. Like, what's, what's going to happen when we start getting shot at? That's always there for anyone who hasn't been there before. All the trouble comes when your friends start getting hurt. That's where the, uh, the pain comes from and the, the fear comes from. Christopher Wilkins, 3rd Platoon Leader, Bravo Company. You knew the scale of it. You, you, just, you saw how many troops were involved. You see how many, like I said, resources of, of tanks and, and aircraft are involved. And you've been hearing intelligence reports about this place for the last six or nine months. And this is it. You're finally looking at this place. It was, it was almost surreal. We knew that it was pretty much just a hotbed. There was no U.S. forces there. The insurgents had free reign of the city to do with what they pleased. They were 
coming there because they knew Americans were eventually going to be coming in. So if they wanted to kill an American, that's the place to go. I know me personally, I, I kind of felt like I was going through the you know, five stages of, of, of death, just kind of coming to terms with what we're fixing to do and, and didn't really didn't feel that I was going to be coming out of the city. 12 midnight. With Marine and Army units attacking into the northern section of the city, the second invasion of Fallujah is underway. The sky over Fallujah tonight is alive with artillery, tanks. It was by far one of the most incredible things I've ever witnessed with tanks and Humvees behind us firing everything they've got into the city, and the city seemed like it was firing everything it had right back at us. We finally got the, uh, the go-ahead to go, and we, we crossed that berm and sprinted towards the city. Second platoon. Across the open field, started making way into the city. And once everybody was there, then we started to push, clearing house by house, trying to make our way to that first objective. I knew the target was the cultural center and the Al Hydra Mosque. I knew the goal was to, to reach that by morning. Third platoon. As soon as we got into uh, the city, we saw a house on the corner and said, all right, let's take that house. When you go into a dark house and go through a dark doorway in the, in the most dangerous city on the planet, it's still a, a pretty scary event, whether there's someone in there or not. Second platoon. Once we made entry into the city and pretty much the whole way to the objective, it was surprising because there was no contact with the enemy. It seemed every house we went into was empty. It was nothing. It was, it was eerily quiet. 7 a.m., first objective, cultural center. We started pushing up, you know, skipping a few houses to, to make time because we were we were taking our time, being careful, but we had an objective to hit. And I remember very distinctly, once we hit the cultural center, we came up to that intersection. I remember kind of thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if we're gonna start seeing this action that we've been anticipating. By the time I was thinking that, crossing that street, that was when it seemed like all hell just broke loose. With Bravo Company engaged in their first firefight, it marks the beginning of a 46-day slugfest. They will endure some of the worst fighting of the Iraq War against an enemy determined to fight to the death. Eric Goss. As we were moving southern through the city, we, we took a building or two. I think the moment it became real was when we took the building to give supporting fire for the mosque and for taking the uh, cultural center. Christopher Wilkins. They believe that the uh, this cultural center that, that Bravo Company had to take was a, a large weapons cache and an insurgent headquarters. There's a large road in front of you, uh, many lanes wide. You have to cross it. November 9th, Highway 10. Nobody at this point was wounded, but the threat in front of you now is real. The potential for the loss of life or being wounded is at an extreme. We knew that crossing that major highway was going to be extremely risky because of the, uh, the densely populated area 
that was there. It was very, very urban. Uh, large buildings all up and down the highway on both sides. Impossible to cover every single window that could potentially be shot out of as we crossed this huge highway. Justin Best. We brought the company online. You just know that this whole company crossing this road, someone's gonna get hit. That was probably the most scared I've ever felt in my life. All of a sudden, every, it seemed like everything around you, every house, every little window, it just seemed like fire was coming from everywhere. The two other platoons behind mine start firing as much as they can, so you're literally in the middle of a gunfight. As third platoon was crossing the street, they started losing individuals. An incredible guy, Sergeant Lonnie Wells. He got shot crossing that highway. Ultimately, he, he became a KIA there. In an attempt to, to pull him out of the highway, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Shane, who was one of the platoon sergeants at the time, uh, he got shot as well, trying to pull Wells out. I truly think that was the moment that, I guess, the fog or the haze began. You're just in the mindset of now keeping your bodies alive. You truly realize if I, if I make a mistake or luck just has it, it could be my friend. It could be your brother, the guy who you uh, went and saw his family the, the month before you deployed. Uh, you knew his girlfriend. That potential was there. One of the Marines was, uh, was Gunnery Sergeant Shane. He certainly had, had the spirit of Bravo Company. He was, he was very well liked and very well respected. When a guy like that goes down and another very experienced Marine like Sergeant Wells, he gets killed. These guys that you look up to and respect and go to for advice are now, are now out of the fight. And, and this is the first day and we've got another month of this. But then you also look around and you're with approximately you know, 200 other guys that you admire and respect and you've now been in your first gunfight together. No one cowered. We all fought together and believe it or not, this was our objective and we took it. And we now have a foothold in the biggest stronghold they have, the most dangerous city in Iraq and we just came in and we took something from you and we're not stopping and we're gonna keep doing it. November 10th, four days in Fallujah. We kind of got all the insurgents' attention, like, hey, we're here, we're in the middle of the city now. We've taken down some pretty key objectives here. The fighting really, really picked up at that point. The casualties picked up at that point as well. From that point forward, you're more of a, more of a machine emotions, you start to lose it. Your mind is very task-orientated. You're adapting, you're, you're finding out what small things didn't work, so next building, you can correct that. You kind of lose concept of time. You might have slept for 10 minutes, you might have slept for an hour, but the nights and days really just uh, kind of blend together. 
Brad Watson, 2nd Platoon. We were moving just extremely fast and violent through that city. A lot of times they were moving so quick. I mean, by the time you're getting set up on, on, on a house and, and really starting to get a lay of where the avenues of approach are, I mean, they're already three houses down. They were, they were moving quick. They, uh, they knew what they were doing. It was incredible to watch those guys work. The professionalism, the bravery, it was something else. So it felt like we were making progress, but at the same time, from my end, it felt like we're missing a lot of stuff. We're leaving a lot of stuff behind. There, you know, a lot of buildings that aren't cleared. We knew we had an objective. We wanted to hit the edge of the city, push as many people out as we could. So that's uneasy knowing that there could be people behind you at the same time. Eric Goss, first platoon. My team stayed back as the rest of the platoon was supposed to probe forward from the police headquarters. They were just going to push a couple blocks forward and then come back to, to get a feel of uh, what's in front of us. The platoon came to a halt. They saw a uh, National Guard in front of us. They weren't supposed to be there, but they had the right markings. And then fire erupted. The platoon were fooled by the enemy having on the same markers as what the local National Guard was supposed to have on. Anderson was lost during that. Anderson was the other team leader that was in my squad. When our platoons joined, we uh, mixed pretty well. So he was definitely a good friend. I remember meeting up with the platoon and uh, them trying to break the news to me. And I remember feeling a, uh, a sense of disappointment. Like I let him down for not being there. Although in hindsight, there's nothing I could have done. No time to cry, really. No time for emotion. November 16th, 10 days in Fallujah. More than a week of intense combat, the American military is claiming a major success in their initial sweep through the city of Fallujah in their campaign to break the back of the insurgency. ...have left thousands of houses and buildings unsearched. Now begins the grueling process of going back into sectors... After 10 days of exhausting fighting, the Marine and Army units have successfully swept through to the southern end of Fallujah destroying much of the enemy's infrastructure. But left behind are hardcore, well-supplied, entrenched insurgents, willing to fight to the death. For the young men of Bravo Company, already bloodied in the most vicious fight of their lives, the brutal task of digging out their enemy, house by house, will unleash a nightmare of battle not seen since the urban warfare of Vietnam. November 17th, 11 days in Fallujah. Brad Watson. We hit the, the southern part of the city, 
especially right there at the edge, it really died off because there was nobody kind of left. But they were all behind us. We all knew that what we had missed so much, we had skipped so much to hit objectives, to hit these things by deadlines, that we're gonna have to go back. You know, one party's thinking, okay, hopefully it's not too many. But you know, when you get them to those last few houses, it's just gonna be one, one hell of an engagement. They're not the surrendering type of people. They're, they're there to kill Americans or die trying. Bing West, author of No True Glory. Let's understand the basic tactic that the Marines used, that not too many other people have the courage to do. What they had to do was tell every squad, 12 Marines, all right, you're going down this block and you're gonna clear the first five houses. Then the next squad's clearing the next five and then the next squad. And each 12-man team had to go to every house. But they never knew where the other side was. Because once you're inside a house, how do you know where the people are? Christopher Wilkins. No matter how many times you rehearse going into a house, if the guy's behind the door waiting for you to enter, I don't care how good you are, you're not going to beat him to the punch of shooting you first. So at the end of the day, you have to walk through a dark doorway and really just hope there's nobody on the other side. And if there is, and he shoots one of your friends, you wanna make sure you shoot him before he shoots you. Justin Best. When the house to house happened, that's where the intensity just went through the roof. We were hitting so much contact in these houses, it was, we were losing people left and right. The biggest fear for us, especially during that first part, was uh, enemy snipers constantly coming up with new ways trying to lure them out. You're putting helmets on stuff, peeking them over windows. And I'd sit back and watch, and we'd hope we'd just try to draw fire on it. Try to bait them into giving away their position. A lot of, a lot of that stuff with the snipers was cat and mouse. 6 a.m. One of the first times I'd seen Ski since the battle. He was in, a, he was in our, our sister team with Bravo Company. We had, you know, about 10 minutes or so just to kind of catch up. You know, he's one of my best friends. I mean, he's everybody's best friend. He was a hell of a guy. We're sitting up there, it's cold. We had our beanies on, had our helmets off, and, and we're just kind of shooting the shit behind the wall. I was smoking a cigarette, and he was typical ski, you know, telling us some funny story about what happened a day or two before that. Seven AM. After leaving Ski, we had moved over a couple houses. I was just getting set up, and I remember hearing uh, just one shot ring out as the sun was coming up. I heard someone come across on our second platoon radio saying, hey, make sure everybody's got their Kevlars on. You know, uh, we just had one get hit, didn't have his Kevlar on. I was kind of thinking, like, crap, you know, Ski has Kevlar off. Bosman was kind of pushing me. He wanted to know, he really wanted to know. So I, I switched over to third platoon and asked him, you know, who was it? 
they said ski, I said ski with weapons or ski with snipers, they said snipers. And uh, I remember, you know, I, I kind of looked up and said it was, it was our ski. I'd heard after the fact that ski was kind of in this, almost like a sniper battle with this enemy sniper, kind of trading shots back and forth, and he had many close call before ski was finally hit. That scared me. You know, if God's gonna take someone like that off this, out of everybody of us that's here, it's nobody's safe, you know. November 27th, Thanksgiving Day, 21 days in Fallujah. We had five Marines go into a courtyard. All of them were shot or hit with shrapnel, and the enemy started throwing grenades. They were all hiding inside this house. We had five Marines that were down inside this courtyard, surrounded by a six-foot cement wall. We're trying to climb over the wall, and then there's machine gun rounds chipping the top of the wall, shooting at us. They're just these incredibly long and grueling gunfights, and you have a really limited number of options because you have an enemy with a ton of ammunition inside a very well-fortified position that they've been planning to die in for who knows how long now, and they're shooting up your friends. December 10th, 34 days in Fallujah. On my level, it felt like this was going to continue indefinitely. I had a chance to make a phone call on a satellite phone, and I, I called my wife. While we were on the phone, there actually was a firefight that broke out. And so she heard the, the rounds going off, and the machine guns firing and all this loud noise, and I'm trying to scream to where she can hear me. Of course, she, she just freaked out, starts crying, and, and I'm just telling her I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, everything's gonna be okay. And um, immediately after getting off the phone with her, I just felt like that was just a huge mistake. I shouldn't have called her, even though I hadn't talked to her in so long, and, and I really wanted to talk to her. I just felt like that was really stupid of me to do, because now she's scared. As the casualties mount, the courage and tenacity of Bravo Company is put to the test. The bonds of brotherhood and their ability to adapt will be crucial as the insurgency withdraws into ever more deadly strongholds, forcing the Marines to fight a violent, up-close battle against insurgents determined to die fighting. December 11th, 35 days in Fallujah. Brad Watson, 2nd Platoon. Tanks came in, kind of blew some holes in the houses across from us. And as they were going in to clear the next house, it just opened up. It seemed like, a, you know, all the ones for that whole block were holed up in these, you know, six or seven houses. And I remember seeing guys 
just the bravery of, you know, going through that gate, making their way to that door. As soon as that gate blows and they're running in, you can see the guys, you know, getting hit and still advancing forward. Three blocks away, Eric Goss, 1st Platoon. I remember as we were clearing our building just hearing gunfire erupt, and you knew that that was first squad in a firefight, and we immediately abandoned what we were doing and got there as fast as possible. Second platoon. Machine gun team seen somebody picking their head out of the rubble, called me up, so I ran up there with my gun, kind of heard a shot, heard something, and uh, Mindy seen Bosman fall down. Immediately put my gun down, ran down there to him. I was calling for, for a medic on the radio. First platoon. That was an intense moment. You have an enemy in that building that already shot Brown, shot Gabrielle, and shot the interpreter just minutes prior. You don't know if you're going to go into a fortified enemy. You don't necessarily know if it's just one or, or ten. Second platoon. They were running back up those stairs, yelling over the rooftop, like, where's this corpsman at? Where's this corpsman at? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Started running back to the stairs to go back down to him, and Mendenhall stopped me. I guess, you know, there was bullets right behind me going up those stairs. He didn't want me coming back down there. But, you know, he was like, we got to stay down. We got to stay down. They've got us covered right now. We can't, we can't put our head up. Go down these stairs, I'm going to get shot. Pick my head up, I'm going to get shot. My gun's down there. We can hear movement in the building below us. You felt like you were just walking into a trap. Anything you do is going to get you killed. I remember just looking down and seeing the tiniest, tiny grenade uh, land right in our stack. We yelled, grenade. Shrapnel hit my friend Nolan. Our radio operator, Santa Bria, Husson. So this one individual in this house was responsible for a lot of our wounded and one dead. I ran back to the wall, yelling for the corpsman again. He's on his way, he's on his way. So I ran back, uh, ran back to the stairs where I could kind of see down to him and, and Mendenhall just kind of looked up and kind of gave the, the sign like he's gone. He's gone, it, nothing else we can do. I remember feeling sick to my stomach. I remember punching the wall, feeling like there's nothing I could do. We got Bosman together and, and you kind of put him in a poncho and it took about th you know, two or three of us carrying him up those stairs. Probably on that rooftop, a good two hours before we were able to get out of there. And then we just pulled back a couple blocks and they called in an airstrike on it. Kirk J. Bosselman killed in action, November 27, 2004. David Halk killed in action, November 26, 2004. R.J. Jimenez killed in action, November 10, 2004. Demetrius Gavriel, 
killed in action, November 19, 2004. William Miller, killed in action, November 15, 2004. At this point, when you're losing people, you feel an obligation to almost always be first. Because I'd feel as if I'm failing my buddy. And you had the sense of you were failing your friends. If they were getting wounded, they were, they were sacrificing more for you. Somehow you could never be the one. Not as if it was a gift to die, but it was, uh, it was something you could give them because it was you instead of them. When everyone around you starts getting wounded or, or killed, that's, that's a gift. That's, that's them sacrificing for you, which makes you feel inadequate. Justin Best. When I think about the Fallujah experience, it's those houses. It's being on the rooftop of those houses and hearing the, the mosques play the, the prayers in the distance. Sitting on a rooftop, you, one of your buddies brings you a cigarette they found because everyone ran out of cigarettes very quickly and they became like gold. And you get a chance to just sit there and, and smoke a cigarette with a buddy. In those moments, you know, one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced is just sitting with a friend, smoking a cigarette, knowing that it might be our last, and just enjoying the fact that we, we get to have one together, you know, before we move on to the next, the next building. December 17th, 41 days in Fallujah. In 40 days of non-stop house-by-house fighting, the young men of Bravo Company have lost 13 of their own with no clear end to the battle in sight. With the last of the die-hard enemy now entrenched in well-supplied fortresses, prepared for a fight to the death, the final days of the battle for Fallujah will see some of the worst face-to-face fighting of the entire war. Brad Watson. It was bad, but it just it seemed to keep getting worse and worse as the days went on because we're, we're pushing their, their hiding places back smaller and smaller. Now they're, they're kind of determined, okay, this is, this is it. This is the house I'm gonna die in, you know. I'm, I'm setting up in here, I'm not leaving. Forces detained another insurgent and destroyed three weapons cache as Operation Blanche continues in Iraq. After almost two months of fighting, what remains of the city of Belouge the second battle in less than a year to take back Fallujah from insurgents who had declared the city their new caliphate has left little untouched, a sign of just how intense the battle was for army. Fallujah has been declared free of the insurgent strongholds that the battle was for army and marine units who had the grueling task of digging out thousands of insurgents who had pledged to fight to the death. For most, that is exactly what they got. December 22nd, 46 days in Fallujah. On December 22nd, 2004, Bravo Company has taken off the front line for the first time in 46 days of non-stop fighting. The following day, on December 23rd, the second battle for Fallujah is officially concluded. 
The cost has been high, with 95 killed and another 560 wounded. In Bravo Company alone, they have lost 13 of their friends. But their courage and sacrifice has proved itself in the bloodiest conflict of the Iraq War, and one of the bloodiest battles of urban warfare since Vietnam. It was a victory won by a young group of Marines and soldiers who stood shoulder to shoulder in an unstoppable brotherhood against an enemy willing to fight to the death. Being West. What did I take away from Fallujah? It was very simple. One team. When you consider we had Army and Marines side by side, they had a mission, they were going to accomplish it. Leaders were not the ones saying, these are your rules of engagement and I'm the referee. Uh-uh. The leaders were, I'm on your team, I'm the coach, we're in this together. And what I really wish is that we could take that one team concept that they had in Fallujah and put that all the way up to the White House and say, when you send that 19-year-old Marine or soldier out there, you have to say, I'm with you. I am your coach. I am psychologically on that battlefield, pulling the trigger alongside you. They have to go in with the same one-team attitude that was true in Fallujah. Brad Watson. I can remember distinctly just kind of looking out at the city as we were, you know, the neighborhoods as we're going out and just, it was a wreck. I mean, we just, just destroyed this place. And just seeing the look on the, you know, the Marines' faces, it was just, it's humbling. Humbling to be in presence of those guys, for sure. And you know, not, not a day goes by that I don't think about them. Christopher Wilkins. Whenever I've run into someone that went in through the Battle of Fallujah, there's an immediate connection there, because we, we both have struggled through something that was very difficult on us physically and mentally. More importantly, I think it shows our enemies that I don't care how well defended you are on your turf, like, you're not gonna stop us. Not only are, are Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen, not only are we you know, tactically good at what we do, but, but we love each other at a very high and strong level that we'll, we'll fight for each other like no one else will. Justin Best. Being around the Marines you were with, for so long, even after the combat experience that happened was sort of comforting for you, because you, you know these guys, you trust these guys. They know something about you that no one else will ever know, and that is what it was like to be in the city of Fallujah at that time. So I almost felt alone with my family because my brothers weren't with me, and that was the actual, that was the first time I ever cried about Fallujah was that night, because it was just, it's almost too much to, to bear knowing that you get to be here and they don't. Gentian Marku, killed in action, November 25th, 2004. Bradley Parker, killed in action, November 15th, 2004. Demarcus Brown, killed in action, November 19th, 2004. Jeffrey Holmes, Killed in action, November 25th, 2004. Joshua Lucero, killed in action, November 27th, 
2004. Eric Goss. We did our job, and we were very successful at it. It, it came at a cost. But w without a doubt, we own that city. And we put our sweat, blood, and tears into that city. Even if there was less of us, nothing would have stopped us from taking that city. You live with these guys. You know their stories, their families. You have fun together, you get in trouble together. That's the guy next to you. It's not just a friend, it's a brother, as if you're blood. That's all that matters, and winning. This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. Join us again next week for Against the Odds, the Magnificent Bastards of Dai Do. The story of the warriors of Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, facing an overwhelming North Vietnamese army in Dai Do. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. Thank you for listening. <laughs>